and like a lot of mothers are like, forget about us, our kids, you know? And this is really bad. It's been stressing me out. I haven't been sleeping. It's just, you know, they left a lot of people in a bad situation. They don't care because it's not their children. You know, it's not about money. It's about our kids. And my kids right now, out of all six of them, four of them are sick all day long today. It's just enough. This is Byline. A show about one newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Andrew Jones. I'm Kale Wilk. And this week we're here to bring you part two of an amazing but unsettling story out of East Chicago. Hi, Lauren. Last week, we began our two-part series about lead and arsenic contamination in the soil at the West Calumet Housing Complex. You can head over to nwi slash podcast to hear the first part. This week is part two. And as where last week we tried to give you a sort of broad overview of the situation, this week we're going to delve into the details. We'll tell the story of a day that we spent at the complex following reporter Lauren Cross as she talked to residents. And in between, we want to talk about the details. One set of details in particular, actually, the health of the West Calumet residents. Again, we want to bring you some voices of people living in and through this story. And we also want to tell you more about the amazing pair of reporters who are helping hunt down and share the facts about this story with residents and the public. If my headgear is on, mm-hmm. I'm recording. Okay. If it's off, I'm not. Well, uh, 91,000, uh, that's a lead concentration. Okay, so let's do a quick recap of the situation. Last week we shared a little about how the West Calumet Housing Complex in East Chicago, built back in the 70s, is part of an EPA Superfund site listed in 2009. It's been discovered that there are high levels of lead and arsenic in the soil, rendering the area unfit to live in. Recently, the mayor recommended that residents relocate since the EPA testing of the soil brought back astonishing results. A few weeks ago, Lauren Cross wrote one of the initial pieces of this story, where she reported that Ebony Claridge, a resident who we met in last week's episode, received a separate letter dated July 11th from the EPA advising her property had lead contaminations of up to 6,900 parts per million on her topsoil. Later, Sarah Reese reported that the numbers went up to 91,000 parts per million at 18 inches down. To give you some perspective, 69,000 is about 17 times greater than the 400 parts per million target used by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agencies as a base indicator for soil removal. 91,000 is nearly 228 times greater. Not surprisingly, Ebony's home soil levels are the highest in the communities, and those numbers might help you get a good picture of just how serious the situation is. We felt the gravity of the situation when we paid a visit to the site, hitching a ride with Lauren, who was spending her afternoon checking up in the situation. Can you just tell us what we're doing today real quick? before we go inside? Uh, Essentially what I'm doing is speaking with residents uh, about the latest, which is the fact that the school board voted to relocate... Lauren has been in the job with this report since it started. 
And on the day we visited her, she was after information about a specific angle of this story. What were parents going to do about the upcoming school year now that Carrie Gosh, the elementary school on the complex grounds, had been slated as potentially having been affected by the contamination as well? At the time we recorded this episode, these concerns weren't conclusive. Lauren was looking for answers in the school as well as on a proposed deep cleaning treatment the EPA would offer residents. A lot of people know you around here? Come on, no, a lady just drove by and she was like, hey, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, she's actually one of the first people I um, spoke with. Um, you know, I've, I've been back here a few times, um, getting just to learn the area a little bit. And um, yeah, I would say I know about a dozen or so families now. Lauren's <laughs> relationship with the families who have helped tell the story of the complex has paid off in the form of several pieces of journalism, showing not only the progress of the investigation into what's going on here, but the lives of the individuals who are experiencing it. Lord's method of gathering information today is simple. Talk to people. Listen to their stories. Connect the dots. She got a chance to do that almost the moment we got out of the car that afternoon. It's Lauren, yeah. Hi. And I was like, don't worry about it. I was like, we don't get publicity. They just keep blowing smoke up for us. Well, no, um, we've actually got two guys with here today. We're doing a podcast, too, so I don't know. I mean, we've been talking with you for a while. What have you heard? Um, pretty I, much everybody. It's okay if I record? That's fine. No, so um, they keep calling these meetings. Marina Barajas made one thing very clear when we caught up with her that day. She wants her story and the stories of her neighbors to be told. Marina is a strong, vocal advocate for her community and her family. You could hear it in her voice. She was immensely frustrated with the lack of clarity she felt she was being subjected to. They, they, no one has answers for us. They don't know, they don't know. I don't know, I don't know is the, the big question. And then, But Marina's main concern, like Ebony or Markeith from the last episode, is her kids. It's like she's placed herself firmly between her six kids and the looming threat of whatever entity it is that isn't making drastic efforts to take care of the residents. It's just, I think there's a lot that's not being told to us, and it's unfair, unjust, and, th- and like, a, mo- a lot of mothers are like, forget about us, our kids, you know, and this is really bad, it's been stressing me out, haven't been sleeping, it's just, you know, they left a lot of people in a bad situation, they don't care because it's not their children, you know, it's not about money, it's about our kids, and my kids right now, out of all six of them, four of them are sick all day long today. It's just enough. No one's giving us answers. They're telling us... Marina lives a few houses away from Ebony in an area where lead levels are at their highest. Right out her front door are reminders that even though this looks like a normal urban neighborhood, at first glance, it's not. Can you explain to me, we're outside your house right now, can you explain to me what we're seeing here exactly, what the EPA's done? Okay, so this was about a half an inch of mulch, and as it rained, it kind of just spread. And I'm sure, like, as my house, I have to sweep over 20 times a day because there's more mulch being dragged in than anything. And when I did the research, they're supposed to do 6 to 12 inches of mulch. So basically, they just made a bigger mess, and for some reason, this mulch is bringing these really huge flies. And so I don't know what's in it, and I would have never brought my children here. It almost makes me feel like a horrible Marina explained that she keeps the floor as clean as possible. Frustrated when the EPA comes in with boots to protect their feet, and the best measure she and her family can take is to be careful where they step and to keep everything as clean as possible.
lead, at its basic use, is an element that appears often in products that we use. It's in our fossil fuels and can show up in paint, cosmetics, and batteries. But at extremely high concentrations, it takes its toll on the body. In adults, it causes joint and muscle pain as well as fatigue, headaches, and numbness. But for kids, it can greatly affect their development. Lead can also cause them fatigue, contribute to weight loss and loss of appetite, induce vomiting and constipation, and affect the body's development. On the extreme side, lead exposure can lead to cancer. In her research, Lauren spoke with Dr. Bruce Lampier. He's an expert on childhood exposure to dangerous toxins at Simon Fraser University in Canada. But by and large, it's, those levels should be dealt with, um, let's say, immediately or urgently. And when you've got large communities that are contaminated, you have to figure out ways to prioritize it. And so oftentimes you look at the levels as one way to prioritize it. Uh, whether children live there is another way. Uh, but there should be a plan to prioritize it. Most importantly, and we don't typically think of it this way, it depends upon availability of funds. It, avail- it depends upon how outraged the community is. Uh, it depends upon uh, whether the local leaders are supportive. It's not simply a scientific question, although we'd like to think it is, or a public health question, but, but a lot of other things come into play. Lead levels in blood and lead poisoning is measured in micrograms per deciliter. Five is the number at which the Centers for Disease Control considers there to be a need to take action. However, as Dr. Lampier points out, this only includes the top 2% of children with lead exposure. The level of lead in children's blood that's considered harmful has been lowered uh, over the last 30 or 40 years in regular animals. It used to be 60 microgram per deciliter, and then it was 30, and then it was 25. 1991, it was lowered to 10, and then most recently, it was lowered to 5. But what the most recent revision also included was clarification about what that means. What the CDC said in 2012 is that there is no safe level of lead blood. However, they also went on to say that we don't have adequate resources, or as a society, we're not willing to spend sufficient resources to uh, reduce or prevent exposure. So we're going to just focus on the top 2.5% of kids, which represents children who have a level level above 5 microgram per deciliter. So that's considered the action level, but only because we don't have adequate resources. Lauren was also curious about the timing and if it was appropriate in regards to the situation. Okay, so the EPA tested these these properties in late 2014, in November 2014, but residents did not receive a letter notifying of them of their results and advising them not to allow their children to play in the dirt, um, in the soil, until June and July of this year. So about a year and six months between the, the time that they tested and the time they notified residents. Um, is that exceptionally long, or is that typical? And how long do, do lead testing of soil take? How long does it take to come back? I guess. Well, it is uh, first. It, it, that's too long. Okay. Um, but but to put it in context, uh, we have been continually defunding EPA, and so I, I say it's taken too long not not to 
throw rocks at them because again we haven't provided them the sufficient funding to, to do this in a timely fashion. Um, weeks to months would be reasonable and expected. And expected. Uh, months to years is excessive for this kind of level of contamination. But again, I'm not really throwing stones. I'm just pointing out from a public health perspective what should should be done. It is just like, it's really sad when it's your kids though, you know. How many kids do you have? Six. Six. What are their ages? Before we said goodbye to Marina, she unabashedly explained her worries. According to her, many people in the neighborhood were suffering from one odd symptom or another. She feels confident that these cases are connected to the contamination. Of course, it's very hard to confirm whether the bad health is related to the polluted soil or not. However, what we do know is that 27 out of 380 children 18 or younger tested between July 1st and August 16th had blood lead levels at or above the 5 micrograms per deciliter threshold set by the EPA. The health department has urged more families to be tested. There's a total of 670 people ages 18 or under that have been targeted for testing. We can confirm something else, too. Marina's persistency. Her daughter is leaving to college, so she went to get her tested. And this is what she said happened. my daughter, my 18-year-old at first, when we took them in there to test. And um, then they pulled uh, the secretary back and tested her right in front of me. So I let up, I was pretty loud about it. I told my daughter, put your phone on record. So I said, I'm telling you right now, my daughter's having symptoms, and you're refusing to test her, but you're going to test a new worker. Like, Led says, oh, that kid's 18, let me zoom around her. I said, is that how it works? You're not going to test my kid. I had to say it over four or five times. And then they're like, okay, we'll test her. So I had a fight with them to test my 18-year-old. We can also confirm that Marina's worried about the health of her loved ones. We may never be able to know if any sickness right now or in the past is related to the soil, but we do know that people like Marina are desperate to find out. Last week, we spoke with a woman named Ebony Clarich. But at this point of the day, she wasn't quite ready to talk to us. So we continued walking through the complex with Lauren. Just as a small disclaimer, during our walk, there was an ice cream truck that came around. Walking around this neighborhood is how Lauren gathered the sources we've talked to in the first place. She and Sarah have been tag-teaming this story and this is how she would describe the difference in their roles. She's a lot more involved with the, I guess, the investigative side to it, at least in terms of working with the EPA, with HUD, with all of the state and federal agencies, working with public records requests. Me, on the other hand, I'm kind of getting to the actual source itself, you know, talking with residents and families. And I think those two pieces together really make a good story. And Lauren also brought up an interesting point. And that's the thing, too, when you're talking with residents, you have to think, okay, what, how would I feel in this situation? You know, how would I feel if potentially for years this soil was contaminated with lead and I'm just now learning about it as a new resident in this facility? A lot of families are just really upset. You know, I mean, I try and put themselves in my shoes, or in their shoes, and try and get an understanding of how they feel. And a lot of them are upset. They're concerned about having to move. And a lot of them are concerned about, you know, whether or not their kids should be tested. It's empathy or sympathy that really is key when crafting a story. 
The best journalism narratives are the ones that make one get a feel, or as close to one as possible, of what life is like for someone. The writers transport us to a different world to see the difficulties, the triumphs, and everything in between. It's indeed about, as Lauren said, putting yourself in one's shoes. Even though she isn't going through exactly what these residents are, she recognizes the difficulties, and at least tries to imagine. It's the most she can do. But making the connections sometimes isn't easy. You know, I think a lot of these people really haven't talked to reporters that often. And then you're talking also about a very complex, difficult subject, too. So I think some people are just hesitant, and they don't really know what to say sometimes. When we as reporters go out to talk to people, we're asking them to trust us. In the recent past, there have been some largely highlighted situations, such as the Ferguson, Missouri protests and the student protests at the state's university in Columbia, where there has been evident distrust of the news media. And it seems people will note that the media will twist the idea or the situation into something it isn't. It's understandable. At the Housing Authority meeting at the beginning of August, news media from all walks were there. Print, radio, TV... So you've got this intimidating set of strangers with cameras and devices picking up on a dire situation and then doing what with or about it. And how do you know? We just ask you to trust us and try our best to explain it. And that can probably leave many dissatisfied or sick of us being around. But there's something, in our biased view, that makes us special. Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, uh, the Times is a, is the local newspaper, and I hope people are a little more, uh, we're a little more inviting and a little more welcoming than maybe, say, outside news media. Are we? Because we're, we're their news source. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure who else has been out here. That's what then. I was going to say, is how many yeah. people have walked around and knocked on doors like you're doing today. If you recall from last week, Lauren spoke to a woman named Markeith Williams for the first time. She has six kids, but has only had a few of them tested. Did you get tested all, all six, or...? No, um, I did the younger three, which is Chloe, Jalen, and Carla, because I, I'm, I'm just thinking that Marquise wouldn't be affected from it. Neither would I. The but other girls, would, pretty right. safe too. The test results take a while to come in. At the time we interviewed her, she said she'd have to wait four weeks. The kids can get tested at one of the local hospitals, like St. Catherine, or the testing facility set up in the neighborhood by the mayor. Yeah, that's the biggest concern is about the kids. You know, are the kids safe? Um, Will we have to move during back-to-school season, which is now, basically? Mm Hey, how's it going? Come on. Back at Ebony's, the lead testing and situation frustrate her, too. We still have to go on. You know, these kids still have to go on with lead in their system. These parents still have to deal with this. You know, just like Flint, you know, it's ridiculous. As of right now, and around the time we spoke with her two weeks ago, deep cleaning services were being offered to residents in order to scrub down the property's interiors. This past week, Ebony received a voucher and then stayed at a hotel while her unit was cleaned. You know, so they come in, they clean behind the stove, behind refrigerators, um, wipe down like toys and different things like that, you know, your baby toys and stuff like that, just just to give you a peace of mind. But it doesn't seem to put her entirely at ease. That's what I told my husband. I do feel like they're prioritizing us, and it makes me feel good, but it doesn't make me feel that good. 
because you prioritizing me for what? You know, for what? Is it because you know that the levels are so high that it's, that it's dangerous that I'm even still here? Is that why? Um, are you guys nervous that the baby's gonna come out with lead and arsenic poison? Are you guys nervous that my kids' test results are gonna come back like that? Are you guys nervous that I'm gonna sue? Right before we left Ebony's home near what we thought was the end of our visit to the complex, Ebony took us out to the front porch and retrieved a small plastic bag full of dirt from the front of her house. This right here, I took this sample because see, Morena came to me and told me. Ebony, like Marina, has lost faith in the powers that be in this situation to give her information she feels is honest. So she's taken matters into her own hands, keeping the evidence tucked in a corner by the step, like a reminder of the source of all her troubles. She's really interesting, though, like, because she's only been here eight months, which means EPA got their test results in 2014 and just informed her last month in July, July 11th, which means the Housing Authority allowed her to move in. So that's what she's upset about more than anything, is that they, the EPA knew the test results at some point before she moved in and just recently informed her when she's eight months pregnant. We moved on from Ebony's to check on a meeting happening around 5.30 that evening. Meeting for residents only, it cautioned, using the number four and a total of four exclamation marks. We were unsure whether or not we were allowed to go inside, but we got in line. Lauren began speaking to residents, trying to figure out what was going on. We also caught up with a few people from the EPA team who said they were invited there for the reason we wanted oh, to go okay, in. Okay, that's really good to know. Do you know who's actually in charge of the meeting? Is it's the, EPA or? No, it's the resident no. council. We're only resident going to answer council. questions. We're oh, okay. not, we're not uh, hosting or anything. Okay. I just didn't know who was hosting it or not. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's, um, it was like an invite only. Nobody seemed to know what the purpose of the meeting was. We saw some residents who came, picked up a big manila folder, and left. But most crowded themselves into the community center until it was standing room only. Someone was giving a preview of the meeting, but it was hard to hear because the room echoed so much. We stood near the back for a moment prepared to stay for the duration of the meeting, but then a tall man wearing a large yellow East Chicago Housing Authority shirt approached us. So that, that's what we're going to do. It was posted on the wall. Who's posting it? Huh? Who's hosting it? The resident council. The resident council? Yes, ma'am. Okay, why is it resident only? Because they want to address, last time we had a public meeting, the residents can ask questions, everybody asks questions, the residents can get their concerns well, responded. Well, we would be happy to listen and not but, ask know, questions? But, it's a resident only, okay? Please be respectful. Thank you. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, sir. No problem. Thank you. And so, out of respect, we left, noting on the way out that not everyone we passed was a resident. One non-resident whom Lauren had met before emerged from the building a moment later and stopped to speak to us. Well, I think what's happening right now is... One, they're not able to adequately answer the residents' questions because they need... Tavis Grant has a vested interest in this community. Many of the uh, residents here are members of my church, and uh, my kids grew up here in West Canyon for about 10 years. So, And he um, thinks that Lauren should... This, this meeting should have been public. It should have been open to the community. 
because many of these persons have family members all over East Chicago and all over Northwest Indiana. And they've got family members that have questions and concerns. And so uh, this is a public health crisis. This is not a residential crisis. This is a public health crisis. All of these babies, all of these children, uh, is too big to put in a capsule. This, this is a public health crisis. I keep using the word situation in reference to what's happening in the West Calumet community. That's because it's hard to label. Residents call it a crisis, but it, it's not that simple. For now, until we know more, it remains a situation, something that's happening in East Chicago, in which everyone from the authorities to the homeowners to experts are struggling to understand. The best that Sarah and Lauren can do is wait for conclusive reports and finalized data to come in. When we met with them to talk about their reporting, they brought stacks of information they'd been searching through in an attempt to connect the dots in a substantial way. What do the levels mean for residents, asked Lauren in an article. She spoke to an expert on the topic of lead in soil contamination, a professor from the University of Southern California named Jill Johnston. Johnston told Lauren that, quote, From what we know, any amount of exposure to lead, especially in fetuses and young children, is dangerous. There's evidence suggesting it leads to lower IQ points, hyperactivity, unquote. While the meeting progressed inside the community building, we walked around, talking to residents and trying to see if they'd learned anything yet. We spoke to a few people about the manila envelopes that were given. And to people who, though they are shaken by the suddenness of the news that their houses need to be demolished, are determined to make the best of it. Got to move just like we moved here. We're just going to move it along. I mean, it's, they're not going to stop us. You know, they're not going to stop our future at all. My kids are going to continue to go to school. I mean, they're not, it's, it's, not, it's not nothing that is stopping us. It's just that it's happening so the fast. The meeting's almost over as we head out a little later on. The whole process of fixing the West Calumet community seems to be moving along in some way, but everyone is still unsure about the timeline. We watched as Lauren synthesized the information she was learning on the spot, writing down questions for herself as she went along. Later, we spoke to the reporters about how they go about collecting information in a story like this, where things develop so quickly and very often without a firm conclusion. For instance, we talked about what type of story this is. It started out as breaking news, and it's, it's probably public safety at this point. I think, I think there is this question about environmental justice, though. And EPA has designated East Chicago as an environmental justice com- community, uh, although I- I'm not quite clear on, on what that means exactly, but it is in the documents that, it, that EPA does consider it an environmental justice community. Which is helpful because the area's history is open to the kind of research the reporters need. The history of this site is so well documented. I mean, on the EPA website they have administrative records, which most of these are just some of the administrative records. Yeah, it's really probably a thousand or more pages of information, and so um, for me it's, it's been a race to try to read through all of these documents that are available that explain uh, what's been done at this site. Sarah and Lauren have spent their fair share of time digging through those reports, trying to uncover numbers and statistics and dates and reviews into relevant facts about what's happening to the lives of people right now. They told us last week their job is to keep residents informed. 
to do the research that so badly needs to be done so that people like this woman who you're about to hear can know how best to help those who need it most. But I know this is a state of emergency. This is beyond HUD's hand, their hand, the Housing Authority's hand. And it's a state of emergency, whether they want to admit it or not. This is Tina Smith. She's not a resident of the West Calumet Complex, but represented her mother at the meeting. But this is my city, and East Chicago is my town. And whatever it takes, I'll be there. It's just that simple. Because that's what we must do. We must care one for the other. Okay? And, and that's how this city has always been, no matter what. It is not only for West Calumet housing development. People need to become aware throughout Calumet on this entire end. Tina wants the message to get out, whether that's from the official organizations or in more open meetings. Everybody is not as knowledgeable as somebody else who thinks he or she may be. That's why we have an obligation to educate everybody as to what's going on and what's not going on. But um, we need some clarity on it and putting things in black and white. Things in black and white so people will know what needs to be done and not just take it haphazardly. I know they don't want to start an alarm, which is fine, because we cannot get to the bottom of it if everyone is running and scurrying and all afraid and panicking. So we understand that. But I think if they're open and honest with the people, you know, it would work better. The question is now, uh, when is the funding going to be in place for these vouchers and when are residents going to start getting it? And how much are the vouchers? I think that really, I mean, that's that's why this is so important, is, is, is that the effects in ladder Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I guess this story isn't over. Byline's going to call it quits on the West Calumet story for now. But we may come back because Lauren and Sarah are still searching for answers in the midst of a maelstrom of information. How can you take something as broad and as messy as this story and narrow it down into something that the everyday reader can understand? Something that people can see and be moved by? Something that helps the process move along as quickly and as efficiently as possible? There's so much information about what's happening in East Chicago. Read the series of articles the Northwest Indiana Times has published on the situation. There are more to come. As Lauren said, the story isn't going to end anytime soon. And as we leave the story for now, having only touched the surface of the surface of what Sarah and Lauren have dug into so deeply, I wonder how many records it will take before some semblance of a clear answer, a straight path forward, makes itself known. We caught up with Sarah before we closed out our telling of the story to see where things are at. She talked about the important work of reading deeply, unearthing the truth, knowing the minutiae, so that she can write well and dialogue expertly on the topic. But it's still a task. It's still hard work. And even though there may not be an end in sight for the West Calumet housing story, at least there is a newspaper and reporters who are willing to comb through the records to find the truth tangled up in the details. Digging, now that I've gotten most of the way through the administrative record, now it's, now it's a matter of figuring out, well, do they answer all my questions, or do I still have more questions, and where do I go now to find more Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. 
We have new episodes every Monday. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for NWI Byline in the search bar and we'll appear. Byline is also available for download on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. We appreciate constructive comments and feedback, so be sure to leave us a comment or review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to research, you can drop us an email at nwibyline at gmail.com. So start listening today over at nwi.com slash podcasts. Reporting for this episode came from Sarah Reese and Lauren Cross, as well as Kale Wilk and myself. Sarah and Lauren will continue their coverage so that you can follow along with their articles and social media profiles for the latest. We'll be sure to share their work as well. We want to say a special thanks to them for guiding us through this episode, helping us figure out the facts, and making sense of this especially confusing situation. They're amazing reporters, and we're in their debt. Data and information for this episode came from the Environmental Protection Agency, the City of East Chicago, the East Chicago Housing Authority, and the U.S. Department for Housing and Urban Development. Other research help this week came from Dr. Bruce Lamphere at Simon Fraser University and also the Centers for Disease Control. Thanks, as always, to this show's creator, Summer Moore, the Times Digital and Audience Engagement Editor, who is the conductor for the train that is this show. I'm Andrew Jones. I'm Kale Wilk. And from both of us here in Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you.